Hey, good morning. You all can have a seat. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, if this is your first time with our church, we're really about three very simple things. Uh, Jesus, gospel, and Seattle. The good news of God. Jesus himself who came to save us from ourselves, not because of anything we've done, but everything he's done to make himself known. And that is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus saved sinners from death to life. And that we want to be a people who carry and share this message to this city, Seattle, who we love so dearly. Um, we are going to continue our study in First Peter. I will go ahead and pray for us, and then we will dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day. This is your word. Uh, we are your servants. We are your people. Uh, and I pray for us, Lord God, uh, that you would move through the, the preaching of the word, um, not because we are smart, not because we are eloquent, not because we are wise, but because you are gracious to reveal yourself to us. We come to your text today knowing, God, that you are a God who reveals yourself to your people, and we pray that you would reveal yourself through your word to us in the face of Jesus Christ today. I pray as I approach this difficult text, Jesus, that you would be honored. Uh, the things of me would be just forgotten, but the things of you would be lifted up and made clear. Uh, would stir our hearts for a passion for you uh, that extends vastly beyond uh, one Sunday, uh, but would move in our lives, would change our lives and sanctify us in your truth, that we would carry your message, that we would be more like you, that we would love you, Jesus, more. We would love others more. Help us, Jesus, to know you, to love you, and to serve you. Lord God, we pray these things for your glory and for our joy. And in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. So we're in 1 Peter chapter, or chapter 4. There is no chapter 12. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Uh, and today we're going to, to continue as Peter talks to this church uh, in a region called Asia Minor, which is kind of modern-day Turkey now. Uh, and he's been talking to these people about suffering. They're people who are living in a time and a place where being Christians... Uh, is not yet illegal in the first century, uh, but is for sure starting to bring pressure. Lots and lots of pressure. They're becoming less and less liked by their neighbors. Their neighbors are growing suspicious of them, and as a result, they are suffering. Uh, what's interesting is when you approach a text like this as a preacher, and you know, if you're a preacher, you should be a pastor, and as a pastor, approaching this text knowing... Uh, we are going to talk about suffering. And so there are those of you in the room who might not know Jesus. And so uh, how is this good news? Hey, everybody, come love Jesus. Let's talk about suffering. Here, here's the good news of this. Uh, if you are here and you're checking out Jesus or you're checking out the Bible or you're checking out the gospel, the reality is the good news of Jesus isn't good news unless it's good news uh, when it's raining out and when it's sunny out. Uh, the good news of Jesus isn't good news unless it's good news all of the time, uh, whether things are good or things are bad, whether you're suffering or rejoicing. Uh, and for those of us who love Jesus as your pastor and as, as a preacher, I want your hearts to, to sing for Jesus and to know when trials come. And frankly, this text tells us trials will come. That when the trials do come, we know where our hope is, and that's in Jesus. We, we know where our life is, and that's with Jesus. And we know where our joy is, and that's with Jesus. Uh, because uh, as this text seems to indicate, and the rest of 1 Peter, and really honestly the rest of the New Testament, uh, if not the whole of the Bible indicates that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through knowing God, there's a number of things that come. One is life. 
The reality of the good news of Jesus is that we have life. The good news of Jesus is the story of God, the history of God, who's come to save us, though we've rebelled against him, though we've lived lives in opposition to God, though we've done things that hurt God and hurt people, though we've done good things for wrong reasons, though we've done good things so that people will think, hey, that guy's awesome, and get all the attention on us instead of God, that God sees our sin and comes and dies in our place to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin, uh, to save us from the things we deserve for sinning against an infinitely wonderful, beautiful, and glorious God. And He comes and He gives us sinners who don't deserve it life. Right? The good news of the Gospel is not just that He pays the price for our sins, and He does. It's not just that He makes us right with Himself through the cross of Jesus Christ, and He does, but it's that through that cross He gives us life. And with that life comes joy. And it's life now, and it's life later. And it's joy now, and it's joy later. And as citizens of a kingdom that is not of this earth, what comes with that life and what comes with that joy also comes trial and also comes suffering. But the reality is that those difficulties as we pursue Jesus uh, are, are limited to this life. Uh, Jesus is coming to wipe every tear from every eye. Jesus is coming to restore the world to the way it ought to be. Jesus is coming to make things the way they're supposed to be. You, me, and this creation. And Peter, and Brian did such a wonderful job. If you heard Brian's sermon last week, uh, honing in on this reality of God's restorative work, um, Honing in on it, and, and Peter's not losing sight of that as he comes in here with this text. And so this is a sermon in two points. Two points. One, how do we respond to suffering in Christ? And two, how do we endure suffering in Christ? Okay, so start with me in verse 12. Uh, we'll read a little, we'll unpack it, we'll really read a little, unpack it, okay? Verse 12, beloved, as you're reading First Peter, Beloved, he uses this a couple of times. It signals a new chapter in the book as far as Peter's concerned in his writing. Beloved, he's going to give us two imperatives, two things that he tells us to do, two orders from Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised, there's the first one, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 13, but rejoice, second command, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, and you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Coming back to Brian's text from last week. When His glory is revealed. When He comes to do the work of putting everything back the way it's supposed to be. When He comes to settle the scores. Uh, when no longer do young men and young persons and young women, good young men and women die young and bad, nasty old people live to be old and in control and accrue wealth and power. Uh, these things will be set right when Messiah comes, when Jesus comes to finally put absolutely everything back the way it's supposed to be and it's coming. So here we are, taken to the top of 12. Do not be surprised. Again, this isn't, this isn't the first time in Peter we're going to hear this. This isn't the first time in the New Testament we're going to hear this. Uh, his buddy John, right? The, the way Jesus sort of team, team, his dudes, his people, the way it works, we've got his inner three. You've got James, John, the sons of lightning, thund, the sons of thunder, pardon me, the sons of Zebedee. 
John, James, and Peter, and Peter's in there. And you got the 12 outside of that where, uh, where Andrew lives with me. He's out there. Uh, and then beyond that, we get the 70. And then beyond that, we get the 144. And then beyond that, we get those who kind of come and go, uh, who he sends out at different times. But both John and Peter are on the inside of that thing. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Don't be surprised when they hate you. preach that. So as a pastor, what's he saying? What's John saying there? He loves this people, this church. He's writing, don't be surprised when they hate you. There's things about us. There's things about our life. There's things about the things that we believe that will make those outside of the camp of Christ not like us, not like you. Not like you when you go to work. Not like you when you do life in Seattle. Not like you. Not because you're mean. Not because you're rude. Not because you're nasty. Because you love Jesus. Don't be surprised. Uh, go with me to John, if you will. Or you can just listen. I'm in John. I'm in 16. Pardon me, I'm in 15. I'll start in verse 18. So I'm in John 16, 18. These are the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Friends, we're in good company. We're in good company. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Uh, if, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. There's something otherworldly about Jesus, and there's something otherworldly about the church, about a church, on our best day, right? When we're most emulating our master Jesus, when we're most in the gospel and in the word, there's something different about us. We see this in Jesus again and again and again, and there should be something different about us as a community that is disarming to the world. If we acted like the world, they'd love us. If we said, hey, do your world stuff, do your money stuff, do your power stuff, do your sexual immorality stuff, do your stuff, and it's all good, whatever. Oh, I'm not that kind of a Christian. I'm not one of those Christians that believes the Bible or, or any of that stuff. I'm just, I'm cool. I, you know, Jesus, he's cool, and I'm cool with Jesus, and we hang out, and you can hang out with Jesus if you want, or do whatever you want, just go with the flow, and everyone says, yay, we love this guy. Why can't more Christians be like that guy? He doesn't take the Bible seriously. Yeah, they're applauding us when we just act like them. We're also a joke to them. Because the reason they're applauding us when we don't take his word seriously is we're basically saying, we don't believe it either. No, no, we don't take it seriously either. We don't care either. Now, of course, if we do care, if we do believe it, if we are living in it, what do we do? We love God. We love others. It's not a culture war in the sense that we're trying to stop them from being like them. We're trying to help them know and love Jesus. Introduce them to Jesus. And we hold fast to that truth of his gospel. Okay, back to Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening. I think, I think there's a picture that he's using here. And I'll tell you why I think there's a picture he's using here. Uh, I'm going to apologize. I don't have any sermon slides today. 
uh, because I saw this picture that I totally missed at like 10 o'clock last night. So here we are in Zechariah in chapter 14 because someone else had to show it to me. And I saw it. I'm like, oh, there it is. Okay, so in 7, we're going to get a quote that Jesus says the night that he's betrayed in both Matthew 26 and in Mark 11. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. So uh, we don't have a ton of time to unpack all of Zechariah and what gets us to chapter 13. But the thing you need to know that Zechariah is a prophet. He's a priest. Uh, and he's also having a vision. This is a vision. So in visions, things are um, can be literal, can be metaphorical, can be kind of, uh, I think the technical term is squishy. Um <laughs> Uh, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Now Jesus quotes this, fulfilling this prophecy. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones, meaning his people. Uh, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive, and I will put this third into the fire. What? Now here's our language that Peter's been borrowing from and refine them as one who refines silver. So God, in his grace and his mercy, puts us in the fire. But he doesn't put us in the fire maliciously or to cause us harm, but to take what we are and to refine the crud out of our life and to make us like silver and to make us like gold. And refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They, listen to this, listen, They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, yes? They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say to them, they are my people, and they will say to me, the Lord is my God. The more I know and love Jesus and the things he saved me from and out of, the more I'm willing to say, whatever it takes that I would know you and love you more. Get rid of the stuff that's just of me and change me. Change me so that I would know you and love you at any cost, Jesus. I don't want my comfort. I want you. I I want you because you're my real life. You are the truest life. You are the realest life. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, though, as something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. I mean, I knew I had to text this, text this, preach this text. I know what it's like to look at it and say, okay, I'm going to look at you and tell you, my church, and the people who I love, don't be surprised when the trial comes. And the trial's coming. Now, we have to understand this in how King Jesus works, right? We live in a broken world. When he puts this world back the way it's supposed to be, there are no more trials, and there are no more fiery trials. We're just there with him forever, perfected, right? Beloved, do not be surprised the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, to test you so that when we're in that furnace, we're in that refining process, we would say, Jesus, you are my God. Uh, the picture in Romans 8 is of, this, of these, these birth pangs, this, this life, this world is broken and he's fixing us and, and he's fixing it and it's still broken. Now, what I don't think we're supposed to do then 
is to take this and look at every little intricate piece of suffering in someone's life and for you to play the guy who's mapping this out for them. Don't do that. Don't look at it and say, oh, I think I know why you suffered, so that you would be tested and refined and, and so that God would do this. Don't. Stop. Because here's what I've seen. I've seen, both in this church and with Christian friends elsewhere, as they cling to Jesus and as they look to Jesus, they can look at it and say, I see what God did in my sickness. I see what God did in my suffering. I see what God did in these things that was happening. And He was God in them in this broken world as He's orchestrating, as He's ordaining, as He's saving, and as He's moving. Yes, we love it. I love that when we do that at members' meetings. I love having that time where you say, let's talk. And people come up and they grab the mic and say, this is what's hard this week. This is what's hard this month. This is what hard, is hard this lifetime. And this is what God's doing in it. Please pray for me. And it's our job, friends, to weep with the weeping. When someone's weeping, we don't try and tell them why they, that, that God is doing. We sit with them and we cry with them. And we tell them the goodness of who Jesus is and what he's done and how he's freed him and what he's doing in the world. And we can say those things with, with confidence, but we don't nitpick the suffering in their life. We let the Spirit and the Word do that with them. Because honestly, I don't know if you've ever had someone do that, where they explain to you why you're suffering. It's not very comforting. That's not what the Bible tells us to do, though. We weep with the weeping. We tell them the truth, and we tell them the gospel, and we tell them the good news. Now listen, verse 13. If verse 12 is crazy, do not be surprised. Verse 13 is crazier. But rejoice. Huh? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, listen to Brian's sermon. It was a great sermon. The text is indicating, is telling us of this time that's coming and how we're living in life of eternity and, and of, of a restored world. And, and we get there, right? But listen to this. But rejoice insofar as much as you share Christ's sufferings. So here's what it doesn't say. There's a number of things it doesn't say, by the way. Rejoice because you're suffering. Period. As a open blanketed statement. So as Christians, we're not sadists, right? Like, I'm suffering, so it's time to party. That's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. That, that's not the point, right? And in fact, there are some who would almost even search out suffering because they think that's what it is to be a Christian. That's wrong. Uh, there are faiths and religions that say things like all life is suffering. Buddhism, for example. True, uh, true Buddhism says all life is suffering. Well, you know, we actually believe in a God who made all things good. And he made human beings very good. The earth is broken. We are broken. But man, there's a lot of good stuff in our life here on planet Earth because God is gracious to us. And not everything is suffering. And sometimes uh, you get this thing in this sense. And as Seattleites, we need to be very, very careful here because we love what I'm about to say probably more than... I don't know that if you're in like... Cleveland at a church, this would be true there, but I think it's true of us, and I care about us, so I'll say it, right? So what's cool about this space is you can see out the windows, or at least I can because I'm up on a stage, so it's getting cloudy out, and it's time to put on your dark, dour music and put on the sad face because it's that 
time of year. Put on the gloom. We're Christians. He is risen. He's risen indeed. You can, you can like dour music, and I like it when it rains, okay? I like the rain. I don't feel comfortable when it's like 65 and sunny. I'm, my skin starts to dry, and I feel uncomfortable. I'm, I'm from Washington. This is home. But be happy when it's raining, right? It's raining, yay! Singing in the rain or whatever. Uh, so we're not seeking to be dour and miserable and long-faced because real Christians are suffering. That's not what he's after here. Does that make sense? Am I clear on this point? Right? What he's not saying is that we're suffering sad people. And in fact, we're going to see in a second that typically when Christians are suffering for the right reasons, there's what? It's joy. So we're not seeking to be the long-faced, dour, sad, sad music party club thing. Right? You're free in Christ to like the rain. I like the rain. You're free in Christ to wear dark colors. Yes, but because we're free in Christ, we have joy. So, so the other thing is, is you're not holier. The guys who are suffering are not the holier guys. You know, well, you know, I live in America and I have a bed, but, you know, Christians everywhere else don't have beds, so I'm going to sleep on the floor. I know I've got this nice bed, but I'm going to sleep on the floor so I know what it's like and I'm going to suffer so that I can be like these guys living in these places where things are hard. I will bet you $5 if you took one of the brothers and sisters from one of the far reaches of where God's kingdom is touched and where people are loving Jesus and you took them here to Seattle and you took them into your home and you said, I know you're used to sleeping on the, on the dirt floor, but I have this bed. Would you, would you rather sleep in the bed or on the dirt floor? I, I'll tell you where I think they're probably going to enjoy sleeping and be thankful. If you tell them, I heard you're suffering, so I'm sleeping on the floor, what? What are you doing? You, God gave you a bed. Sleep in your bed. I know people have done this, right? You might do this and you're like, oh, yeah, life goes on, right? Sleep in your bed. God gave you a bed. And honestly, there's enough trial and suffering as a Christian for 10,000 other reasons. You don't need to invent or hunt out or look for suffering, to be totally honest. If you're being faithful in following Jesus, if you're clinging tightly uh, to his word, if you are doing difficult things for his glory, your trials are going to be a lot greater than the bed that God gave you. Sleep in the bed. And if you find yourself on the mission field and you find yourself out there and you sleep on the floor, praise God that you've got a roof over your head. And if you don't have a roof over your head, praise God you've got Jesus because they can take absolutely everything away from you and you still have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have absolutely everything. But let's not, because we live here in Seattle where it is comfortable, let us not invent suffering because that's not what Paul, Peter, Peter, Peter is talking about here. So what is he talking about then? But rejoice what? Fancy word. In so far, if you're in the ESV. In so far, one word, three words stuck together. In so far. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. What are we rejoicing in then? Not that we're suffering. Rejoicing, we're rejoicing that we're associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? This happens in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's Peter and John, and I'm a little rusty now, and I should have looked at it, but in 5, uh, they've been preaching. They get taken in to the Sanhedrin. Uh, they beat them up and say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. What do they do when they leave in 541? They rejoice. They rejoice. Why do they rejoice? They were kind of worthy to suffer dishonor 
for the name of Jesus. So they're not rejoicing that they got beat up, because that would be weird. What they're rejoicing in is that they were counted worthy to be associated with Jesus as such. And so when hardship comes, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And even as that hardship comes, if it comes to the gospel, they may take absolutely everything. You could lose absolutely every stitch of everything, every dime of money, everything. How did Jesus die? They took everything. He died on the cross. They took his only earthly possessions, and he died on the cross. They didn't know that in his death, burial, and resurrection, he was as Messiah and as God, taking his right seat at the right hand of God the Father forever and ever to rule and to reign. They didn't know that in that he was getting everything, which he already had because he was God, but then he was getting everything as Messiah. It gets kind of complicated when you get into that whole Messiah-God thing, but they're both there. He had everything as God and now has everything as Messiah. And so you and I as Christians, as they take it all away, if they take it all away, if you're in that spot, if you're in trial, if you're in suffering, as long as we have Jesus, we have absolutely everything. And if they're taking it away because you're doing difficult things for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do rejoice. We do rejoice. But not because we're suffering. We rejoice because we're counted worthy. Because they associated you so tightly with the Lord Jesus Christ that they came after you. What an honor. I mean, it's weird. Like, let's just be honest. I'm, ta- I'm talking crazy talk now. But only crazy talk to the world. That if you were so tightly associated with the Lord Jesus Christ that they took everything you had, or the world didn't like you, or your neighbors didn't like you, or things were hard for you, because you were after Jesus so tough, you have a lot to celebrate. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, what do these two things have to do with each other? So rejoicing because of sufferings, we're rejoicing, and this word revealed here, this is the word apocalypse, which is kind of cooler than revealed, um, but he's tying it in with revelation stuff, Jesus' return, We are Christians who believe the Bible, which means we believe, know, and are confident that at any moment, literally any moment, Jesus is going to come ripping through the sky and putting absolutely everything back the way it's supposed to be. And so as we suffer, as things are taken away, as we are associated with him here on earth, which costs us stuff, we are associated with him in his return as the king and as his people. And we have much to rejoice about. So as we rejoice with him in our suffering, we rejoice with him in his return because we ain't got nothing to be afraid of because Jesus is coming back and I belong to him and he belongs to me and he's my king. And literally, literally, any moment he's coming back. Period. Let us not forget the urgency of that reality. If you are insulted for the name of Christ... Oh, man, that guy is such a square. He won't go with us to the after work stuff, and he won't do this, and he won't do that, and he won't do, oh, ugh. Or you're fired because you love Jesus, or any other thing. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, what does it say? You're blessed. Again, they recognize in you 
an association with God himself, Jesus Christ, who came and lived the perfect sinless life, who died a death in our place, who rose from the dead, who has saved us from our sins, who's made us alive together with him as a free gift from him, not because of anything we've done, but everything he's done is a gift to us. Jesus, who saved sinners from death to life, has moved in your life, and they insult you. They insult you. Are we supposed to be surprised? No. I mean, so in my time doing life, as a pastor and interacting with other pastors in, in various scenarios, when one of the churches, if anyone I know gets in the paper, you know what everyone says? Look, the paper did a thing on us and said how awesome we are. Look, the paper loves us. Yay! And everyone goes, the world loves us. Yay! You know I've never, ever, ever heard a pastor do? So you know what? The local paper, who's run by people who don't love Jesus in any way, shape, or form, who don't like the gospel, who thinks the Bible is dumb, who thinks the gospel is dumb, who thinks the way we live is dumb, who, who thinks nothing positive about us did a really positive piece on us. Are we doing everything right? Is this how it's supposed to be? Again, we're not inviting. I mean, it happens, right? Sometimes the world looks at what God is doing in our midst and says, wow, something unique, something special is happening here. But how often as Christians do we just love someone to throw us a parade and we don't just stop and ask, is my life different than the world's? Do they know what I believe from the way that I live or the way I interact with them? Do, do, do they know what I know about freedom? Do they know what I know about God through the face and person of Jesus Christ? Do they, do they know that that is my joy? Do they know that that is the only thing I care about? Do they know that? from the way I'm living. Because it says here, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you will bless. Why? Check this out. This is amazing. I mean, I want... This stuff gets me like giddy. My prayer for you is that as you read your Bible, when you hit something like this, you almost want to like giggle or be excited or be almost like almost silly about it. Because what does it say? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Why are they insulting you? Because Christ is with you by the power of his spirit. You're going through suffering because God's with you. You're going through suffering because the spirit of God rests upon you. You're being insulted because God lives with you. God dwells among us. God dwells inside of us. We are his temple. They are insulting you because God lives with you. And when you know that, when that one fact comes to life for you. So wait, so they don't like me because God lives with me. Do I want them to like me or am I more into God living with me? I think I'm more into God living with me. All day long, in fact. But hear this. So there's wrong ways to suffer, though. Verse 15. But let, no, not, uh, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. This is important, too. Right? There are times, and this isn't helpful for us, when people in the cause, the cause of Christ, that is, can be overbearing, can be rude, can be nasty, uh, can be downright horrible. And so what Paul's saying is if you're being horrible and your neighbors don't like you because you're being horrible, don't blame it on the king. 
well, you know, I, I, I went track bombing and yelling at him, and I told him this, and I did that, and I kicked him in the knee, and then they said they didn't like me. It's because I'm a Christian. It's because you kicked him in the D, dude. Stop kicking him in the knee. Stop kicking him in the knee, and they might not revile you. Let them revile you for your love of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a right way and a wrong way. Please, if you're being a jerk, don't blame it on Jesus, okay? Don't bring him into this. Just say, I was a jerk there. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Because we're Christians, and that's what we do. Um, verse 16. Yet, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian. Here's what's interesting. How many times that word is used in the New Testament? Three times. Here in Acts 5. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, as a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And by the way, I would also say, here's my I don't have time to do this. Can I talk about a pet peeve? Oh, I'm not a, I'm a follower of the way. Oh, that's a, uh, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Uh, we try and invent all these words. There's two things we try and invent words for because we want to not be offensive. One is Christian and one is non-Christian. Well, don't say they're dead because that's offensive. Well, yeah, but they're dead. They're spiritually dead. I want them to be alive. You can't ease them into that jacuzzi, right? <laughs> like, you're dead. Jesus will make you alive. Right? I'm not saying there's no way for you. I'm saying there is a way for you. His name is Jesus. Well, yeah, but you really got to build relationship first and then move in next door and bake them some cookies and have them over for dinner a few times. Then you tell them you're a Christian. And a few days later, you say, oh, I actually believe the Bible. And a few, few dates later, and then next thing you know, then you say, oh, and by the way, you're dead and you need life. That could take a while, especially in Seattle where we don't like to hang out with each other. You're never going to get there in Seattle. Again, not as a meddler, not in a rude way, but let's be honest. Like, you're here at church. I'll tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says you're dead. I was dead. He made me alive. You want to be alive? Meet Jesus. He's awesome. You're trapped. You're stuck. You're entrapped. You're stuck in your sin. Let me tell you about Jesus. Who will? Not because of anything you've done, any right thing you've done, the clothes you put on or the way you act or the things you do. He will save you not because of what you do, but because of what he does. And that's different than any other escape plan I've ever heard of. Every other religion says you need to work really hard so God will love you and maybe he'll love you. The message of the gospel is you can't do it on your own. You need a savior. His name is Jesus. Be saved. And here's the beautiful thing. You can't earn it. You can't impress him. Uh, and not only that, you can't keep it. Not height, nor depth, nor power, nor principalities will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That means you're saved, and you're His, and He's got you. And you can't out His cross. You don't have anything that's too big for Him. You don't have anything that you bring in here that He can't save you from, He can't redeem you from. And doesn't just make it even, Stephen. makes you new. It changes you. It says you're not dead anymore. You're alive. And guess what? I'm a Christian. Why am I a Christian? Because that's what Peter calls me. I, I don't, that's what the, the Apostle Peter is going to call me a Christian, so I'm going to go with the Apostle Peter. If you don't like the name Christian, heck, if you don't like the name evangelical, you're in an evangelical, Bible-believing, Christian, Jesus-loving church, and our aim is to love God and love others with absolutely everything we have. So that was an aside. I'll keep going. That was the mini rant accompanied with the sermon. 
Rant? That sounds some, that sounds like a meddler word. Um, <laughs> discourse. There we go. The mini discourse on labels. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Matthew chapter 5. As far as I can tell, Matthew chapter 5 was the text I was reading when I got saved. Thank you, Jesus. Um, let's start in chapter 5. Oh, it's so good. Let's go to 10. Blessed are those. Also could be translated happy. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're persecuted here on earth because you love Jesus, but what you get out of the deal is you get the kingdom of heaven. I'll take it. I'll take it. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus changes the sermon here in 11. Instead of talking about them, he talks about you. Blessed are you. This is crazy, right? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. What? Falsely on my account. Rejoice. There it is again. Peter is just repeating what Jesus told him. Thanks, Peter. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets. Why does that count? The prophets were the people who were associated with God when nobody else was. In the Old Testament, you get prophets, so they're it. They're alone. And then you get other times where they're like, I'm it. And God's like, well, heck, come on, Elijah, I got some guys for you. I'm it. But, but generally speaking, prophets in general are people who are alone, calling out, come back to God. Repent. Love God. Stop worshiping pretend gods. The prophets are associated with God in that way, in his truth. So rejoice in God, for your order is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how will saltiness be restored? Cling tightly to Jesus, cling tightly to his truth. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's all flowing out of the same spot. We're bright light, even when they're insulting us, when we're clinging to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Cling to his truth. Be blessed. Okay. So how do we endure suffering in Christ then? My second point, I promise we'd get there. I don't know if you've been able to get there. Okay, now here's where Peter's doing something. If you've been running with us through Peter, Peter's done something at least a couple of times. He said sort of confusing things that sound really bad at first, but then when you actually understand what the heck he's talking about, you're like, oh, you're trying to encourage me right now. You ever have that friend? Oh, this is encouragement. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Maybe that's just me. Uh, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And it begins with us. What will the outcome for those who do not obey? Uh, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I'm going to read the whole thing. We'll, we'll unpack it, okay? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator 
while doing good. So what he's doing here is he's borrowing from a place. He's borrowing from another vision, from another prophet, specifically Ezekiel chapter 9. And in Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel's having this vision, and he says this in 3. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone. So the glory of God is this pillar of smoke we hear about in, in Numbers and, and throughout the, the uh, Pentateuch. Um, that's the first five books of Moses. In the Bible, we hear about this. So the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the people of God have this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments, and over the Ark of the Covenant is the glory of God, this pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. And, and what's amazing and what's so beautiful, you get this, this illustration, I think it's Numbers 10, 9 or 10, and it describes what they're doing. As they're wandering around the desert, the pillar of smoke picks up and moves, and they pack up camp, and they go. And Moses just gives us this really, like, sort of plain Jane description, right? So when the pillar of smoke picks up, they pack up camp, and they follow the pillar of smoke. Then they set up camp, and they sit there. And it says sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's a month. Wherever the pillar of smoke goes, that's where they went. I think this is the most beautiful picture of discipleship. Wherever God takes the pillar of smoke, we go. We're ready to pack up and go, no matter what. No matter the cost, no matter who thinks you're crazy, uh, no matter if you've got, oh, but I got set up, and I got the 401k, and they finally gave me the salary I want, and the thing, and the deal, and, the, and I got the corner office. It's so comfortable here in Cincinnati. If you're here from Cincinnati, no one asked, told me that, by the way, and I'm, I just randomly picked it, so it's not, I'm not saying I'm doing anything. But for some reason, in all randomness, whenever I say, like, Cincinnati's... I didn't, I just said Cincinnati because I thought it sounded better than Cleveland. <laughs> and then God says, go. But God, I'm so comfortable here. But God, everything, everything's finally running the way it's supposed to run, and everything's so smooth. Go! Okay. You got it, Lord. You got it. And now here in Ezekiel, we get this vision of the pillar of smoke. Um, now, the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherubim on which, and again, this is a vision, so think, um, yes, there's literal stuff, yes, there's visionary stuff, there's word pictures, there's symbols, it's a little squishy. Now, the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherubim on which uh, it rested, and those are the things that, if you ever see a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, they're the things, the angel things that are right there. With their wings, like that. Um, where am I? Uh, now the glory of God of the Israel had gone up from the cherubim on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called the man clothed in linen, uh, again vision, who had a writing case on his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. Mark my people out. Now, mind you, this is Jerusalem. Everybody's supposed to be his people, right? Everybody's supposed to be his people. So mark them out. Because uh, they're bummed. Because they're groaning. Abominations. We'll skip ahead and go to... Um, da, 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 da. And while they were... Uh, no, I'll just read the whole thing. I was going to try and cut it down for time, and I can't find my spot. And then I'm talking, they go, da, 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 and the next thing you know, it would have been easier just to read it. Pass through the city through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sign and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, pass through the city after them and strike. 
and your eyes shall not spare, uh, and you shall not show pity. Kill old men outright, young men, maidens, little children, women, but touch none of them who have the mark on their head. Everybody. Only people who are marked are in. Only people who are marked are in. Only people who have Jesus are in, I think is what Peter is picking up. There is one way to God. His name is Jesus, period. There are many paths on one mountain, and they all lead to the white throne of judgment and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're either in with Jesus or you're not, period. That is the truth of the Scripture. It is irrefutable in the Bible again and again and again and again and again and again. Now, of course, we have really good news there. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's offering you grace and mercy. Be saved. You can't save yourself. You need Him to save you. So begin with the elders. Now here's where Peter gets the image, I think. Begin with the elders who are before the house. I, I think it's also interesting that the whole next chapter is about the elders. We're told that elders, we use synonym pastors like this guy, will be judged more harshly than others. Teachers will be judged more harshly than others. God takes his word seriously. I want you to grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what I want more than that when I get in this pulpit every Sunday? I want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. I want to preach this word faithfully. And that's the, honestly the best thing for you, too, by the way, that I fear the Lord in that way. That's the best thing for the church, that I, I'm trying to honor Jesus first and foremost and say what it says. But I do so knowing this comes from me first. Elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Def, uh, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, I was left alone. I fell upon my face and cried, oh, Lord God. Will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? He's judging. He's, he's weighing them. He's judging them. And he's starting with the people. He started in the temple and he went out. So the temple and the elders and he went out. Uh, God is going to judge. And it's going to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Um, go with me to 1 Corinthians. And like I said, we're going to get to the part where this is encouraging. So just stick with me. He's trying to encourage us. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. I think he's leaning on Matthew 7, by the way, where we hear about the two men, the one who builds his house on the sand, the one who builds his house on the rock. Uh, those who listen to Jesus and build their house on his word uh, is like a wise man who built his house on rock, but those who disregard his words are building their house on sand and they will be destroyed. Uh, the beautiful thing about that picture, rain's coming, trials are coming, suffering is coming, but those who have their house built on sand, that will be destroyed, but those who build it on Jesus will live. Okay? So here we are in 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else, uh, someone else is building upon let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. God knows. God knows. He knows what you do in the day. He knows what you do in the dark. He, he knows who you are when people are watching. He knows who you are when people aren't watching. For the day will, the day, capital D, if you're in the ESV, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. There's our fire metaphor. There's that testing. There's that purification thing. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So, this beautiful picture at the end of Revelation 20. The books come out. 
And in the books are written the deeds of every human being who has ever lived, period. And they're judged. The sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Well, what survives through that fire? The Jesus stuff. The Jesus stuff. We, we need to be really careful because sometimes we miss the fact that, yeah, we're sinners saved by grace. That means that everything that was of me before I met Jesus, that's gone because that is going to get burned up by fire, period. But then we actually get to live a life pleasing to God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't sin. That's going to get burned off. All the nastiness, all the sin, all the things we've done against God, that gets burned off as we enter into the kingdom. And you know what the beautiful thing about that is? It's gone. It's gone. You're not a sinner in the kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness. I, again, talk about the things that make me kind of giddy. Imagining a life where I never, ever, ever sin ever again. Oh, Lord, the freedom. Where my, my mind and my thought is all Jesus, all glory, all the time. Praise the Lord. That's coming for us. And on the way there, all the other stuff's going to get burned off. Now, here's where it gets encouraging, I hope. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, so all the Jesus stuff of your life, everything you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ survives, you'll receive a reward, which is Jesus. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer a loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Not height, nor depth, nor power, nor principality will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Have you ever asked someone, or have you ever even responded this way, perhaps yourself, when someone says, are you a Christian? I say, well, I'm not a very good Christian. What does that mean? You're either in or you're out, right? You're either in or you're out. You're either with Jesus or you're not. Go back with me to Peter. Okay. For the time of judgment to begin has begun in the household of God. Now, what ultimately saves us? What ultimately gets us in? Did you hear what he said? He didn't say, and we'll come back to the book of Revelation or else we'll miss the whole gospel thing. He didn't say, and I'm going to judge the church, and people who have good works are going to make it in, and people who have bad works aren't going to make it in. Who, did, who gets to go in? Out of all the people who love Jesus, even if they didn't live that life the way they were supposed to, but they were a legitimate follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, what are they? Christians. And what are they in the kingdom? They're saved. They're in. Now, mind you, at this day, the dude who died on the cross next to Jesus, I always come back to him because he is, I mean, he's just such a beautiful picture, right? He's there next to Jesus. He's even, we hear, started by making fun of Jesus, dying on the cross. And as this day goes down, he realized, oh, that's Messiah. Oh, it is the Savior of the world. I'm dying next to the Savior of the world. And I've been making fun of him for like three hours. And the other guy keeps making fun of him. He says, stop. Stop. We belong here. He does not. He, not supposed, he is not supposed to be here. And he says, remember me. What does Jesus say to this guy who doesn't come down from the cross and who doesn't get to go make things right and doesn't go get to live a changed life and doesn't get to get sanctified? Today you will be with me in paradise. Do you think when that guy is standing there and having all the nastiness of his thieving life because he's on the cross for a reason, he even says so, when all that gets burned off and he enters the kingdom never to sin again, do you think he's saying, well, that's not fair? He's saying, that's not fair. I'm getting in. I don't belong here. It's not fair. 
Our life in Christ isn't fair. You, you, cannot, you cannot win your salvation. He has done it. And all the hard, nasty garbage of your life will be burned off. And you're not going to be sitting there saying, well, not all that guy's stuff got, not all that guy's stuff got burned off. Well, yeah, because, well, he was following Jesus. Because you can actually live right now, today, a life that is pleasing to Christ. Now, the thing about it is here's the freedom in this, right? So listen, as we come down to this picture and look at it, what does this mean that I do? Look what he says. For it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If this is what happens to us, that's what happened to that thief on the cross. Everything gets burned off. I mean, we can say, I think I can say that with confidence. That guy, everything gone, right? <laughs> Torched. And he's going in celebrating, by the way, into the kingdom of God at that point in time. So he barely gets in. What about people who try and do it on their own? It's just all going to get burned down. Look at this picture, right? Look at this picture of this rich, young ruler who says he's done everything right, except for he loves his stuff. He's a lover of money and comfort and stuff. And Jesus doesn't say that we're all supposed to sell our stuff, but he says, what else should I do? And it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. What an amazing detail we get in the Gospels. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, because he knew this stuff, Sell all that you have and follow me. The man was very sad because his possessions were great. He doesn't do it. He doesn't follow Jesus. The cost is too high. And then all of a sudden, they say, well, this guy, the guy who did everything right, if he's not going to do it, what's, wait, what? And they have this conversation with Jesus, and he says the scariest thing ever, right? Well, with man, it's impossible. Can't hear it on my microphone. I was supposed to be big gulp. Gulp? Impossible? Well, with man, it's impossible. It's easy, and he gives us this picture of the camel. It's easier for the camel, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. But with what, man, with what man is impossible, with God is not. Your salvation in Christ, if you are here today and you don't know him, is an impossibility. You being right and reconciled with God in human terms, hear me clearly, in human terms is an impossibility. But what's impossible with you is not impossible with Jesus. You can't cross the gap to get to him, but he crosses the gap to get to us. And so all of a sudden, when I hear this picture and I hear of everything getting burned up, all of a sudden, my, my motivation here, my life in Christ, is I'm not doing these things so that he will love me. I am doing these things. I am serving him. I am following him because I love him, because it's free, because he's the glory of my life. He's the beauty of my, He is the thing that I live and the thing that I die for. And I don't do those things because I think that that way I can get into heaven. Because what did I just hear? Win, lose, or draw. I get in. But I say, well, you know, I'll take it. Burn it down. It's cool. I didn't like that stuff anyways. If I get in, I'll live life here. I'll do my thing here. I'll do the earth thing here. Everybody will like me here, and I'll get into the kingdom. That's not the way it works. Because if you look at that and say, cool, burn it down, I'm concerned you might not even be a Christian because you missed the whole point. The whole point is that Jesus has saved you and freed you to live this life for him in his glory. So how do we endure suffering then? For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And... If the righteous, he's quoting Psalm 1131 from the Septuagint, which I will skip from there. Uh, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, if this is reality. If you're in and you're saved and, and he's got you, 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, as we're in that fire, entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. What do we do? We endure for Jesus. We trust Jesus. And we do Jesus stuff. We endure, we trust, and we do good. right? While doing good. We endure, we trust, while doing good. Because the reality is this. We can look at our life, and we can look at suffering, and we can do a couple of things. We can either blame God, and we can say, why'd you do this to me? Sovereign God of the universe, who's saving me for myself and working in all creation to restore all things. Or we can blame ourselves, because here's the deal. Your life ever get hard following Jesus? Marriage ever hard following Jesus? Friends hard following Jesus? Parenting hard following Jesus? Here's our problem, Americans, if you're American. Our Western problem, the Western problem. We think if we're doing it and it's hard, that it's probably not being done right. We like it easy. We like easy street. We love comfort. We don't like hard hard stuff. We don't want to move on from our corner office in Cincinnati. It's got air conditioning. And it's right by that pierogi place you like so much. It sounds hard. That must not be what God wants me to do if it's the hard thing to do. That sounds absolutely and completely inconsistent with the Bible. Now, do you think it was a hard thing for the rich young ruler to sell his possessions? Well, he didn't do it, but if he had done it, would it have been a hard thing for him to sell all his possessions? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely would have been hard. At least somebody's awake. It would have been hard to sell all his stuff to follow Jesus. Jesus may be and probably is calling you to do hard things that may even cause you to be in uncomfortable situations. May cost you something. The cost of discipleship is steep. And following Christ and honoring him and putting everything forward to do that, it might cost you everything. You get called to plant a church in Iran, it's going to cost you your life. doesn't mean he's not calling you to do it. I love you and I want you to know what the Bible says. Even if he's calling you to put it all on the chopping block. What do we do? Nothing fancy. I have some eloquent word. We suffer according to God's will. We entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We endure, we trust, and we do. How do we do big things for Jesus with our life? How do we not waste our life? We endure, we trust, we do. How do we give everything we've got to respond to the gospel no matter what? We endure, we trust, and we do. How do we live holy lives? Jesus uses strong words. Cut off your hand and rip out your eyes. If these are strong words. To war against sin is hard. What do I do if that war against sin feels costly? Endure, trust, and I do. I endure, I trust, and I do. How do we grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ? We endure, we trust, and we do. 
you want to become a Christian, you want to know him, you want to love him, you know it's going to cost you something. You endure, you trust, and you do. If you don't know Jesus, this is good news. This is not, this is not a flowery evangelistic message, but I will tell you this. God is life. Jesus is life. Jesus is joy. And yes, it may cost you absolutely everything to follow him. And in so following him, you get absolutely everything. You get life and you get joy. And church, if we are going to be a radical, Jesus-glorifying, God-proclaiming people who know him at all costs, it might actually cost us all costs. And in the all cost, we get absolutely everything. We get Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, let us be people who both are not surprised at suffering and rejoice in the midst of it. Help us be a people who don't sell out the gospel, who don't sell out the Bible, who don't sell out the church, who don't sell out our faith, who live without compromise, clinging to you and to your cross. We live without compromise, clinging to the reality of your resurrection. We live out without compromise, warring against our sin. We live without compromise, seeking to please you, not so that you will save us, but because you have saved us. May we fight for joy. May, may we fight and know in the midst of trial and tribulation who you are, what you've done, and what you have done for us, suffering on our behalf so that we can have joy. May we not suffer as meddlers. May we suffer as worthy Christians who love you. May we be bold in our love for you. May we be bold in our love for the church. May we be bold in our love for the lost. May we be bold in our love for your word. And when the pillar of smoke moves, may we follow. May we follow. Lord Jesus, we love you. We need you. Help us to proclaim you. Lord God, we do pray these things for your glory and for our joy. And in your name, Jesus Christ, amen.